0: You're listening to the Weed Smart Podcast. Each podcast, we look at what's going on in each cropping region, focusing on those pesky weeds. Welcome to another week of the Weed Smart Podcast. It's our second last podcast for the year. We're rushing towards the Christmas period. I'm joined again by my co-host, Pete Newman. How are you going, Pete?
1: Yeah, good, Jess. Went to my first Christmas party of the season last night. So yeah, Christmas is nearly here. I can admit it now.
0: Yes, that's right. And we had our staff party last week as well, and that was really... Yeah, just a real wake-up call that the holidays are just around the corner, so everything's sort of moving along. It was a good time though, lots of it games. It was
1: good, <laughs> on the banks of the river there, playing a few games with the RE researchers. Yes. I didn't win any of them. Uh, I failed in the egg and spoon. How about you, Jess? Did you You were more of an organiser than a participant
0: yeah i was the uh the lead of the of our tug of war uh, okay. side so yeah i was i was i was in the mix but yeah mainly coordinating so yeah it's always good to have a bit of uh, fun at the christmas party have a few uh games and things like that so we had a good time and celebrated a big year for Ari and weed smart because we obviously focus on both in our roles, Pete, but uh, you've had a bit of dramas coming into the, the Christmas period with your irrigation. I hear you've kind of got a new dog for Christmas, an early Christmas present, but he's giving you a bit of grief with the retink.
1: Yeah, well, we'd like to have a dog for a bit of, uh, you know, as a bit of a guard dog. The old dog is deaf, so we've got the new sort of young one-year-old dog sort of come in as a bit of a backup plan and he's a nightmare. He's just he, My thongs <laughs> are gone. They are torn to shreds into one centimetre cubes on the back. Wow,
0: line. that is dedicated.
1: And Yeah, he is. He's a good chewer and he's good at digging up the retic. So my weekends pretty much are governed around f- fixing up the retick that Mex digs up and chews up. And it's completely buried. It's subsurface irrigation. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know I mean, I guess like, they Can they smell it maybe? Can they smell I don't know. the he water? he knows
1: something is down there and he digs it up and he <laughs> eats it. So if anybody has got a humane solution, What I've done is I've left bits of pipe around the yard laced with Tabasco sauce. That's my 1st Oh, that's a good strategy. Yeah, so he's going to get a bit of a peppery taste next time he chews on a bit of re-tick pipe, hopefully.
0: I think sometimes when dogs are young, they just want to explore everything, and then once they kind of figure out that it's not that fun, they get over it. I mean, my dog, Heidi, when she was young, she ruined our irrigation too, but she hasn't since. She's moved on to less obstructive ways of entertaining yourself.
1: (laughs) yeah well hopefully it comes to an end one day yes fingers crossed we should move on to weeds really we (laughs) should yes how to fix my dog
0: yeah get in touch on on We Smart Twitter. (laughs) Uh, We've got a couple of interviews today that we'll be focusing on. First up, we're going to hear from Barry Haskins. He's an agronomist and he's going to be talking about summer fallow management. And then later on in the podcast, we're going to be going a bit international, hearing from Brad Hanson. He's going to be talking to us about uh, resistance in weeds in California, Pete. So getting a little bit of a preview of what it's like over in the States in that region. It's always good to have a little bit of a, uh, yeah, look at, at the international scene and what's happening because resistance can be a problem for anyone globally, really. It's, it's a global issue, so it's good to get a snapshot of what's happening around the world in that area. Yeah.
1: Obviously, no cl- crops in California, but uh, resistant weeds nonetheless...
0: Yes, so we'll find out a little bit more about that later on, but summer failure management, Pete, it's very topical. What's your tips for getting it right?
1: Well, I reckon I learned a lot from Bill Gordon in our recent Wheat Smart webinars, and the main thing I would learned about drift, I learned a lot, but one of the main things I learned about drift is the different air movement that happens at night compared to during the day. And that laminar air movement that happens at night time where the air just travels evenly across the ground rather than turbulently, I guess, is the other way it travels during the day, is uh, a big cause of drift in our situation. So, yeah, if we are spraying anywhere near sensitive crops of any sort, uh, nighttime spraying is a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. Pardon the
0: pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's take a listen to uh, Barry Haskins' tips and, yeah, hear what he has to say about summer fallow management. I'm chatting with Barry Haskins. He's the director and he's an agronomist himself of Ag Grow Agronomy. How are you going, Barry? Well, thanks, Jess. How
2: you feel?
0: I'm really good. Now, I've caught you just in the middle of a very busy time. Obviously, harvest is underway, and you're in between harvest at the moment, isn't that right? Between canola, did you say, earlier? Yeah, so canola and uh, some of our pulp
2: just been completed as we speak, and uh, yeah, barley and, and the wheat are yet to come, but yeah, probably get a good run at this over the next couple of weeks.
0: Excellent. Very, very busy time. But we're going to be talking about uh, fallow management. It's another important issue to definitely start thinking about. What's your general overview of how people should approach fallow management this season? Yeah,
2: well, obviously the first thing is checking things and make sure you know what you're, what's in your panic. So, you know, we all get busy at harvest time and uh, it is a time where you just want to kick back and relax particularly after you've finished harvesting. But, um, you know, like anyone that's sitting on a headache, can see there's a lot of summer weeds particularly in our area and also given a late cool finish to the season we've actually got some of our winter weeds that are still uh, quite green and maybe um, yeah maybe a quick spray straight after the, the headache and, and eliminate the seed set or minimise that seed set as well so but knowing what you've got and understanding the importance of uh, clean colours to hopefully save any moisture that we might um, get through the summer months.
0: Yeah definitely and have any weeds been particularly bad this year compared to other years?
2: Uh, well, definitely, yeah. We're, well, so, obviously, winter wheat's coming through. We're definitely seeing some um, black oats, brome and ryegrass particularly. Uh, it's actually still quite green. So, even though the wheat crops or the cereal crops are ready to harvest and will be harvested, it's just been so cool at the end of the season that we will get a hit on these with our first fallow spray and pine well. So, that's the winter weeds, but obviously the summer wheat, uh, the main wheat we're seeing underneath the crops is melons and um, our, our, our usual black grass heliotrope uh cat ed, that sort of stuff. So uh, our, our usual mix of um, of weeds, and chucking in a couple of harder
0: to kill ones there, being flea and Jersey tubweed for us. Yeah. Yeah. Keirley Condon, who's on our RE team, mentioned that uh, Jersey tubweed has been a bit of quite a bit of a problem. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an overview of the biology, or just give us a bit of an idea about this weed because some people might not have heard about it on the podcast before?
2: Yeah. No worries. It's um. So it's a weed that does germinate in the springtime, very much uh, similar to the Some of our crop herbicides do do tidy it up a little bit, but I find that that's variable. The biggest impact with this weed is it's extremely hard to kill in the fallow phase. So it's got a, a very silver-type leaf about it. with a lot of little hairs, and it seems that no matter what we do, with a herbicide choices, that it is a very difficult to kill weed. So the choice of herbicide the rate and the type of adjuvant all have a big impact on it. In fact, I find it one of the hardest ways to kill in our fellow environment out here. Other agronomists haven't found that, but that's certainly what we've found in our, in our region.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a concern. And do you have any other general tips when it comes to uh, fellow management in terms of spray application people should be looking towards doing or anything like that? Yeah,
2: of course. Um, so obviously timeliness is number one, so making sure that you know, like I said before, we're on to our fellows at the right time. We don't want to be late wow. spraying bigger weeds. So first thing is time limit, second thing is the choice of products and making sure that we're that we're getting the right product choice and the right rate applied to our paddocks. And probably as important as all of that of is is application technology. So making sure that we get that chemical down to the weed and into the weed in the best way. That's the that's the spray side of things. And then the the other side of things is using all of the other tools that we've got so and making sure that there's no survivors. So whether that's with livestock, whether that's in cultivation in some situation or other techniques, then, yeah, I think that's really important. So in other words, doing the job and then making sure that it works and there's no survivors.
0: Definitely. Any other final tips, Barry?
2: Hope it doesn't rain for the rest of the harvest and and heaps of rain after about uh, mid-March.
0: Fingers crossed. Sounds good. All right, thank you so much. Okay, thanks very much. That was Barry Haskins there. You can follow him on Twitter. He's actually pretty active on Twitter and gives a lot of helpful hints. And his Twitter handle is at agrobaz and he is working for Agro agronomy and Research. So yeah, definitely you can chase up Baz online. But is there any final tips, Pete, you wanted to impart about summer failure management?
1: I guess summer spraying is just a reminder of how important it is to store moisture and nitrogen, which is really following up from all the stuff we did with Colin McMaster a year or so ago, Jess, uh, with a lot of uh, Weed Smart podcast and Weed Smart webinar and so on Colin was great and the finding that they I think get seven or eight dollars back for every dollar invested in summer spraying just for that nitrogen and moisture conservation so I guess that's the big picture that it, it is a really important part of our system these days to conserve moisture by having good summer fallow management.
0: So Pete with summer fallow management it's different obviously depending on the region that you're from but with Victoria having a lot of rain is that going to have an impact?
1: yeah well obviously disastrous summer rain well harvest time rain for some growers uh in the east uh just over the weekend just gone some people are getting up to 200 millimeters i think Jess.
0: yeah and, crazy uh,
1: disaster for harvest obviously the positive side is that it is stored moisture for next year uh, and so yeah, summer fallow management will be particularly important in those areas It just got a huge lick of rain so yeah not not good news for those growers that are negatively affected but i guess uh, we uh, still need to manage that, that summer fallow to, to conserve that moisture.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. So, yes, if you do have any photos or questions around summer fallow management, we're still going to be active on Twitter right up until the Christmas period, so do tag Weedsmart in your tweets if there's something you want to share or ask about. We'd love to see uh, the conversation get started around anything related to uh, what's going on with summer fallow management at the moment. But Pete, bit of a change of pace, we're going to be checking in with Brad Hanson. He's actually an international guest on the podcast this week. He's a cooperative extension weed specialist at UC Davis based in California. And he's going to be giving us a little bit of an overview of the glufosinate and glyphosate and also paraquat resistance they're experiencing in some of their tree crop weeds. And it just goes to show that resistance, it's a global issue, Pete.
1: It is Jess, and obviously, in more of your uh, orchards and plantations of different types, uh, you can get heavily reliant on those knockdown herbicides. We saw in Western Australia a couple of years ago a population of ryegrass that was discovered to be both glyphosate and paraquat resistant from a vineyard in the southwest, found by Andrew Story and Sally Peltzer down there. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the you can really jump from having no resistance problems to having resistance to our most valuable herbicides in one hit so yeah, uh, yeah it, it is certainly uh it can be a big issue for yeah. growers of fruit and vegetables and all different sorts we focus a lot on grains but yeah
0: all right well let's take a listen and get a little bit of an overview of what's happening in uh, brad hansen's world we're speaking with brad hansen he's the cooperative extension weed specialist at uc davis how are you going brad
3: Good, Jessica. How are you doing today?
0: I'm really good. We've got a massive time difference. Can you first tell me how you're going and give us a bit of background on yourself, Brad?
3: Sure. I really appreciate the chance to visit with you. So I'm a Cooperative Extension Weed Science Specialist at UC Davis in California. My role is primarily as the statewide weed control person for orchards and vineyards in the state. That's all the tree nuts, tree fruits, grapevines, and, and several dozen uh, uh, woody perennial species, I guess. And I've been in that role for about eight years. And I work primarily in chemical weed management and herbicide, herbicide issues, herbicide performance, herbicide crop safety, and to a, some degree, herbicide fate in the soil environment.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned resistance, and your work focuses on glyphosate resistance, glyphosate and paraquat resistance in tree crops. Can you give us a bit more detail on the extent, I guess, of the resistance you're facing in California?
3: In all of those crops that I mentioned, which is probably somewhere around a million and a half hectares of, of tree crops, glyphosate is the most important herbicide. Um, in every every one of those crops, the number one herbicide used is glyphosate. Uh, we just, we use a lot of glyphosate because of the the canopy structure of those crops, you know, the trees and vines, there's a lot of opportunity to use broad spectrum herbicides like glyphosate, especially glyphosate, but also glufosinate and paraquat in, in many of those crops. So our growers rely a lot on post-emergent control. As you might expect, since you're talking about resistance, we've, we've selected for some resistant species in those crops, primarily to glyphosate. Uh, we have... I think right now about seven species that are pretty widely scattered in the state that are, are difficult to manage that are now resistant to glyphosate. And that's where my program is focused over the last few years. On my extension role, we talk about alternatives to control those weeds, you know, alternatives to glyphosate. In the basic science part of my program, we kind of can help characterize and understand the mechanisms of resistance to glyphosate might be the, the genetics and, and uh, underlying physiology. I actually have a, an Australian postdoc from the University of Adelaide who's a geneticist in my group uh, working on that. And then we've done some physiology work, looking at differences in kind of plant growth characteristics in, in uh, glyphosate-resistant grasses and also several broadleaves. So that that's mostly glyphosate, and that's been our, our public enemy number one um, because we use so much glyphosate. Those glyphosate-resistant weeds are... You know, really front and center for the growers. We have a few cases of uh, weeds that are resistant to glyphosate and then have also become resistant to paraquat. And I've had a couple of my graduate students work on these uh, glyphosate and paraquat resistant um, Italian ryegrass or lolium and also uh, Caniza canadensis. Uh, We call it hairy fleabane here. And then there are a few cases of apparently glufosinate resistance in lolium in the, the ryegrass species. That's not a widespread problem here, but it's certainly one we are concerned about because that's been a really important management tool for glyphosate-resistant weeds.
0: So resistance is one of the challenges. What are some of the other challenges faced by
3: farmers in California? In terms of weed management, resistance is, is probably the, the most perplexing right at this moment. We do have some weeds that are just difficult to control. That's probably the better way to describe them. Some of the real challenges that we have in the tree and vine sector are perennial weeds. Namely, uh, yellow nutsedge would be uh, really important because a lot of these post-herbicides don't work that well on it. Uh, we have some challenges with field vine weed or morning glory, some people call it. Those perennial weeds can be a bit challenging. They're mostly challenging in the young orchards. So We have quite a few good herbicides for our established orchards, say the almonds and walnuts and pistachios, but in the first one to three years, maybe four years in some cases, we we don't use all of those post-emergent herbicides because of concerns for crop safety or or some of the pre-emergent herbicides as well because of concerns for crop safety on those young trees. Unfortunately, that's when the weeds are the worst because you have the smallest crop canopy, so you have the most sunlight hitting the orchard floor and and you have your hands tied behind your back in terms of chemical weed management the orchard cropping sector the tree nut sector specifically has been really valuable in the last 10 or 15 years so we have lots of acres of young orchards those early uh, plantings of orchards can be real problematic from weed management standpoints then lastly well maybe not lastly but but also important in that sector is we have regulatory challenges in California. Um, a lot of people are aware of that. So there are issues related to air quality and pesticides, water quality and, and uh, contamination from pesticides, particularly in, in areas that have really coarse soils, sandy soils. And then in many of our inland production areas, there's concerns about dust um, creating atmospheric pollution. So sometimes tillage is not the best option because of um Articulate matter from the uh, dust that's kicked up from that tillage operation. So lots of, lots of challenges in that regard. And then like any farmers, the economics are a real driver for weed management. Even in a valuable crop, we, we probably spend in an almond or walnut orchard maybe a, up to $200 a year or even more for just for weed management. And that's chemical control and physical control. So if, if a grower can reduce that cost, they're certainly game to do so.
0: Uh, and the goal is pretty proactive in testing for resistance, so they know what issues they're facing. How are they tackling uh, the resistance issue?
3: I, I would say we we don't have the same sort of testing program that many of your Australian growers do, because we have a lot of different growing climates and growing regions. So the the most important weeds in one part of the state where they grow almonds might be very different than in the another part of the state where they grow almonds. So the the diversity in Rainfall, the diversity in soils, and then even diversity within that crop sector. As I as I mentioned, the tree nuts are important and grapes, but there's there's several dozen species, uh, tree and vine species that are important. So so the growers they're proactive when they see the failures in the field, and usually what they would do, like like any grower would would uh, either add another herbicide to that mix or perhaps switch to a different post-emergent herbicide or try to incorporate some of the good pre-emergent herbicides that we have. And that's really been the approach that for a conventional herbicide use and grower, I've been, I and my colleagues have really encouraged use of the pre-emergent herbicides. We have more modes of action in the pre-market than we do in the post-market. And then basically you're reducing the numbers that have to be controlled later with those post-herbicides. So anything you can do to reduce that the odds of finding that resistant individual, the better off we are.
0: Definitely. And what about the industry response? What's their response been to this issue?
3: So I'll answer that a couple of different ways. Most of our tree crops have a herbicide program. Most of them still use glyphosate, although I think we're much less solely dependent on glyphosate than we were, say, 10 or 15 years ago. The industry the crop protection industry in several of these crop sectors, we have fairly new herbicides and new modes of action. That's really opened up um, the doors for much better control of herbicide-resistant weeds and of weeds in general. Most of, our, I would say, our new products are in the pre-emergent market, and that's why, as I said earlier, I've, I've really been encouraging use of those. Mm. Unfortunately, several of those are, are quite a lot more expensive than than very low-cost generic glyphosate, so, so there's an economic challenge that goes with that. But in, in the crops that I work in, they're, they're generally fairly high-margin crops, particularly compared to maybe some of the broad-acre crops that your your folks would be more familiar with in Western Australia. Sure. The crop protection industry is certainly aware of the, the challenges with resistance uh, glyphosate resistance in particular i think what i what i see our main response to that is we're, we're not actually replacing that much glyphosate with other products we're mostly adding other products to a mix that already contains glyphosate so i mentioned that there's six or seven species that are resistant to glyphosate but glyphosate still works quite well on the other you know 200 species that might be out in that in that orchard so so we're mostly seeing tank mixes and then sequential programs that incorporate a pre-herbicide along with later post-herbicide applications.
0: And was there anything else you wanted to mention based around our discussion this morning?
3: I I would just say I've enjoyed visiting with you, and and, uh, it's been really interesting to see where the similarities and where the differences are in the more high-value horticulture crops that I'm working in currently compared to the grain and maize and soy systems that I've worked wheat systems that I've worked in in the past. Realistically, we put a lot of the same kinds of selection pressure for resistance, whether we're talking about almonds or wheat. And it's up to the growers and the advisors to really come up with thoughtful programs to manage the, the species and the species complex that you're trying to control in any given field or paddock.
0: Thank you so much. It's been really interesting talking to you, Brad.
3: Thank you, Jessica. Have a great day.
0: Thanks very much to Brad Hanson there for having a chat to us on the podcast. It was a really difficult peak to catch him because obviously the massive time difference. So I think it was night time when we did the interview, so really lovely of him to make the effort. We really appreciate it when our international guests obviously have to go outside of their work hours to chat with us over in Australia, so it's, it's lovely to be able to have that opportunity. But Pete, back to Australia, back to our uh, home soil, we're going to be travelling over to Dolby for the Riders of the Storm Cropping and Resistance Forum, so that's going to be pretty exciting. Pete?
1: I'm really hoping we're going to feature the Riders of the Storm song, Jen. Oh, I'm pretty
0: I'm sure, sure that's set in stone, yes.
1: Okay, excellent. Yeah, <laughs> looking forward to it, heading to Dolby, <laughs> a lot of travel coming up, but really looking forward to the trip to Dolby and, uh, and really a part of the world where resistance is really becoming a problem now and it hasn't been as a big a problem I don't think for as long as the southern farming system. Uh, they've managed to get around it by just rotating to different herbicides most of the time but uh, sort of get the feeling they're they're ready for a bit more change in their farming system because herbicide resistance is really starting to cause some bigger issues. So it would be really interesting to go and hear from uh, from the growers and agronomists in that part of the world, Jess.
0: That's right. And although not everyone can obviously go to the forum, uh, we'll be interviewing some, some of the speakers on the day and some of the attendees. And so we'll have a bit of a overview of the forum for the next Smart podcast, which will be in a couple of weeks' time. It'll be the last one for the year. So we'll give you a nice update in two weeks time but yeah until then pete that's pretty much it for today thanks so much
1: thanks jess and
3: we'll see you in dolby yes definitely see you there